Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 14, Transnistria Gets an F. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Fail when we fail. Surrender fort necessity when we surrender fort necessity. And today I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 1, It's Bart Gets an F. And that first aired on October the 11th, 1990. And I'm going to be talking about the barely recognised state of Transnistria, a quote-unquote country of around half a million people in Eastern Europe, which declared its independence on September 2nd, 1990, about a month before Bart Gets an F was first aired. Excellent. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. Hello. Yes. Uh, we had a break for Christmas. A lengthy break for Christmas, mm-hmm. as indeed I did at my job. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we're, we're here to bother you again. How was your Christmas, Tom? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Um, my, my little brother got me a copy of Bart Simpson's Guide to Life, so I've been enjoying that, reveling in 90s nostalgia. And my uncle, uh, because, because our last sh- show was about flags, for Flag Special, go back and check that out if you haven't listened to it already, because everyone knows that I'm into flags, my uncle got me a set of miniature flags that were made in the 1930s, printed on silk and given away in cigarette cartons. Wow. And they have been incredibly well preserved. And I'm going to have to take photos of all, all of them and put them up somewhere. So, so stay tuned for that, flag fans. Excellent. Excellent stuff. What about yourself? Uh, I had a great time. I had a Christmas Day with my girlfriend Kat, and we had a great meal and uh, slobbed about, frankly. A lot of drinks and uh, some great TV. Uh, and the whole the whole rest has been fantastic for me. Mm-hmm. Um, my best present was, uh, again it was from Kat, was a memory foam mattress topper. Because uh, the springs in my mattress were starting to poke me in the back. Oh, right. So now I can I can actually sleep. Wow. And wake up not feeling like I've uh, been on a bed of nails. Excellent. So, Kat, if you're listening, thank you very much for that. Superb. Which I'm, I'm sure I've already said in person. <laughs> Did you do anything for New Year's? Uh, yes, I went to a house party with uh, some of my friends and drank a uh, ridiculous amount of rum. Right. And right. you? Um, I just stayed in and watched Jules Holland's annual Hootenanny, which I seem to do every year for some reason. Oh, right. Who was on this year? There was George Ezra. I do not understand the appeal of George Ezra because he sings like Vic Reeves in the club style. Yes. And I... bizarrely was on Vic Reeves' Big Night Out. Was he? Yeah, the latest uh, series. Wow. I'll have to catch up with that then. <laughs> Because every time I see George Ezra, the way he sings, that's Vic Reeves' club singing. You can't do that. <laughs> so yes, but here we are in a new year, new series, and we're talking about series two of The Simpsons. Absolutely. Which uh, I 
to, uh, at least to my mind, is a, a massive step up from season one of The Simpsons. It is. There is a lot to cover, including mm-hmm. some uh, some news of uh, transmission changes and that kind of thing. But I'm afraid we're just going to have to pause for a bit of sad news at this stage. Mm. Um, those of you who have listened to episode 13, uh, which was about the, uh, the episode Some Enchanted Evening... Um, we'll have heard us talk about Penny Marshall, who played Ms. Botts, the babysitter bandit, in that. I'm afraid she passed away uh, since we last recorded. So, uh, there mm. we go. Yeah, sad news indeed, R.I.P. And now, in a smash cut from that uh, sad news, <laughs> let's get on with Retrospecticus Season 2. So, as stated, Season 2, Episode 1. The production number, which I'm sure you're all excited to hear, is uh, 7F03. So 7F is the production block for Season 2, rather than 7G, which we had uh, for the Season 1. And the first episode produced was actually two cars in every garage and three eyes on every fish. But, and we'll touch on this later, Bart Mania was running wild at the time. So the producers decided they wanted to start the season with a Bart-centric episode. And let's return to that air date for a second. October the 11th, 1990. If you've got a calendar to hand... Well, it's probably not one for 1990. But if you had one to hand, you would see that it's a Thursday as opposed to a Sunday. So what gives? Mm-hmm. Well, Fox was still an upstart network at that stage. And would you believe it? It wasn't even programming every day of the week during season one of The Simpsons. Thursday evening programming was a new thing. And it meant going up against NBC's... <sighs> the Cosby Show. Ooh, yeah. Which... More recent news aside, was at the time a ratings juggernaut, and seemingly unshiftable as the number one show in its well-established time slot. The Simpsons, in a bold move, would go head-to-head with Cosby at 8pm on a Thursday, with Fox hoping that The Simpsons could grab an audience to stick around for new sitcom babes and drama, slightly better known, Beverly Hills 90210 in the following slots. It was a ballsy move, uh, it was one the producers were a tad jumpy about. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with US television, I, I certainly was before I researched this, a network is nothing without affiliated local channels to show it. And Fox had 133 of these, compared to NBC's 208. Mm. The show's staff believed they could make the Sunday time slot their own if they had a second season in that slot. But The Simpsons was arguably the hottest show on TV and on the edge of becoming a true cross-media pop culture phenomenon. In the off-season, a huge amount of merchandise, and particularly Bart Simpson merchandise, had been sold. There had been been controversies at schools, schools banning pupils from wearing Simpsons T-shirts, particularly Bart Simpson T-shirts, particularly ones with sort of anti-authority slogans and that kind of thing, some of which he never actually said in the show. Mm. I must at some stage uh, um, compile a list of all <laughs> the various slogans that uh, were, were put on to cash-in T-shirts by Fox. Yeah, because it's something that's easy to forget. Back in the early 90s, The Simpsons was counterculture. Yes. So at the time, there was an awful lot of hype about what was referred to as Bill versus Bart, even if a lot of it was simply media commentators saying that Fox had messed up and The Simpsons would be crushed. (laughs) Um, So I guess the only remaining question is, did the gamble work? And I'm afraid the answer isn't particularly clear-cut, because now we have to look at US viewership, and you know how confused I get about that. Nielsen ratings and eyes on sets and all that. Yep, Yep. okay. Yep. So it is said that 33.6 million people 
watched Bart Gets an F at 8pm on October the 11th, 1990. Thursday, October the 11th, 1990. So it's about a tenth of the American population. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's obviously massive. In the Nielsen's, Cosby won with a score of 18.5 compared to The Simpsons' 18.4. Okay. But it is said that more eyes were on the screens showing The Simpsons and both had a 29% share of the audience. So it's really difficult to judge. You'd have to, hmm. you'd have to give it to The Simpsons, really, it's a bit as, of a as the upstart. Um, they wouldn't officially beat Cosby until nearly the end of this season, and we'd be into season three before it was happening in any major way. But it does happen, and it will continue. This episode, as you might have guessed by the 33.6 million people that I noted, remains the most watched and highest rated episode of The Simpsons ever. Wow. Which shows you the sheer power of hype. That much hype behind it that, wow, did not know that. The series would settle into the mid to low 20 millions for the rest of the season. In fact, this episode would remain the most watched program on the Fox network ever by Nielsen rating until January the 1st, 1995, when it was beaten by a game of American football, which got a Nielsen of 21.0. And just for a bit of fun, Tom, can you guess the two teams that were involved in that game? Ooh, I don't know that many American football teams. I'll go uh, Miami Dolphins and Oakland Raiders. Okay, well, it was the Minnesota Vikings and the Chicago Bears. So completely. But given wrong. I gave you no context whatsoever, <laughs> you could not have been expected to get that. So okay, so there we go. So quite a historic episode of The Simpsons in retrospect, um, and quite a good one to my mind. But I hear the cries on the wind. <laughs> oh, Gareth, they say, what was the UK number one when this episode first aired in the US? Yes, we need this bit more context. And from the pile marked, man, I wish this was more interesting. It's Maria McKee with Show Me Heaven. Show Me Heaven? Yes. Ringing any bells? It's, it sounds like it's the sort of thing that had come off a shampoo commercial. Yes, yes. I think it may have been Show used. Me That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it may have been used for an advert later on. Um, Maria McKee was in the band Lone Justice, who Wikipedia describes as cowpunk which would put them in such illustrious company as X, Meat Puppets, and Social Distortion. Sorry, did you just say cowpunk? Cowpunk, yes. Sort of like country country mixed with hardcore punk. Right, that's a genre I'm not familiar with. Yes, it seems unlikely that Maria McKee was in a band that was central to the cowpunk uh, legacy, but there we go. Yeah. I, I wasn't there, so I, I can't tell. Show Me Heaven was the main song from the movie Days of Thunder, which featured Tom Cruise as a NASCAR uh. racer... And is rubbish. Maria would go on to feature on the soundtrack to Pulp Fiction and have her songs recorded by the Dixie Chicks and Bette Midler. Not at the same time, she <laughs> But most oddly of all, at the age of 19, she wrote a song which was released five years before Show Me Heaven and performed by someone else entirely. She wrote A Good Heart as popularised by the ex-Undertones frontman Fergal Sharkey. Wow. Nice. Yeah. I would never... Have um, I've said she wrote that? No. How would you ever guess that? It's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. So there we go. Anyway, enough about Maria McKee. Let's go on to The Simpsons. Okay. 
But we're going to be stopped yet again from getting to the episode because as soon as you turn it on, you can see the changes. The opening's changed. Mm. And this is the opening you remember, basically. Yeah. Uh, it's been reanimated with most of the shots and situations being almost exactly the same, but slicker looking. Uh, and with the unnamed characters in the original opening being replaced by more familiar faces. So I'll just run over the three main changes, uh, which is that Burns and Smithers have been added to the sequence with Homer in the power plant. The sequence with Lisa cycling back to the house has been cut entirely, replaced with a whip pan that, if slowed down, is revealed to include a number of secondary characters. And finally... Bart doesn't grab the bus stop anymore and instead skateboards around a number of characters that were introduced in Season 1, including Helen Lovejoy, Moe, Bleeding Gums Murphy, Apu, Barney, Chief Wiggum, and even Jacques, who basically never features in an episode again aside from a brief cameo, as they will stick with this intro template for the next, deep breath, 19 years... <laughs> This gives that character way more cultural stock than their scant appearances would otherwise garner. Mm. Right, Tom, are you finally ready to get onto the episode? Oh, yes. Right. Chalkboard gag is, I will not encourage others to fly. Mm-hmm. And the couch gag, it's a new one, rather than the repeats from season one. The couch falls through the floor, bringing forth an annoyed grunt from Homer. Oh. So, what happens? Well... Bart makes it plainly apparent that he hasn't read Treasure Island during his book report on Treasure Island, which also has the indignity of following Martin's incredibly dramatic presentation, An Afternoon with Ernest Hemingway. Mm. After his inevitable punishment, writing, I will not fake my way through life, repeatedly on the board, he is given a good talking to by Mrs. K. He fails to take it in, hearing only gibberish, but correctly guesses that he is being told to straighten up and fly right. Rather than taking this sage advice, he is soon away to Noiseland Arcade to play Escape from Grandma's House, achieving the rank of Ungrateful Grandchild. <laughs> We're then treated to an Itchy and Scratchy episode e. called Let Them Eat Cake. In it, Itchy cuts off Scratchy's head using a guillotine and puts dynamite in the mouth of the severed head and the head explodes. It's very cultured for... <laughs> For Itchy and Scratchy being based around the French Revolution. Definitely, yeah. Showing, showing a hidden depth, which uh, we'd come to appreciate. Then it's off to dinner before the soup forms a skin, where we hear of Lisa's latest A-grade. Her triumphant vocabulary test is pinned on the fridge, covering a picture of a cat drawn by Bart. Bart decides now is the time to study, but Homer enlists him to watch Gorilla the Conqueror. <laughs> aired as part of Big Gorilla Week on Million Dollar Movie, <laughs> ensuring that Bart is knackered by the time he hits the book and falls asleep as his parents salute his trying in the first place. Bart heads reluctantly into school the next day with the shadow of a big test hanging over him, but only if he can't convince Otto to crash the bus. As he fails, he's forced to ask Sherry and Terry for the answers. They deliberately mislead him. And Tom, can you remember how? What did they say the name of the Pilgrim's boat is? The Spirit of St. Louis. Correct. And where did it land? Acapulco. Yep, sunny Acapulco. Sunny Acapulco. And what caused the Pilgrims to leave England? Giant rats. Yes. All historically accurate. <laughs> and Martin actually tips Bart off that he's been lied to. Bart is forced to fake a stomachache to get out of the test and is diagnosed with amoria phlebitis, which I've looked into and it actually doesn't seem to exist. Oh, okay. Um, but if anybody knows differently, I know we've got some very, very clever regular listeners. Yeah, any doctors or 
and I mean, you know, medical doctors, not not PhDs, not like me, because <laughs> I don't know. Yep, well, you know where the eel tank is, so uh, drop mm-hmm. us a line. Um, when he later eats his third bowl of double cappuccino chocolate fudge ice cream, Lisa is on to his lies. The next day, Bart this time cheats from Millhouse. The problem being, Millhouse was genuinely wrong with his answers. <laughs> the low score leads to another visit to Dr. J. Lauren Pryor, who we first saw in Season 1, Episode 2, Bart the Genius, and won't hear that much from uh, thereafter. Homer fails to take this in, hearing only gibberish in a nice little callback. The Doctor puts a spin on a popular t-shirt slogan of the time, underachiever and proud of it, and here we finally get our white whale for the episode. Bart is in serious danger of having to repeat the third grade. Now the way I remember the episode, it was like that was revealed really early on, Mm. but we seem to get like basically to the end without it even being mentioned. Um, maybe that's just, just time playing tricks on me. I think I think it's because being held back at school at school is just such a big thing in American culture that 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 that's big enough to to form your cent to form your central plot and it's so big that it can come quite late because everyone understands what it means. True, true. So after a flash forward where Bart imagines himself in school with his own son, he enlists Martin for a cultural exchange. Martin will teach Bart to study, and Bart will teach Martin to be cool. This backfires when Martin becomes too cool to support Bart's studying and goes off to the arcade. Bart is therefore forced to resort to prayer. And lo and behold, a snow day cancels school the next day. Bart goes out to frolic, but Lisa shames him into study. And as the entire rest of the town has the time of their life, (laughs) Bart is slapping himself in the face to keep himself sharp. We've all been there. Glossing quickly over speculation as to how John Hancock is writing his name in the snow, we cut to the aftermath of the test, and Bart has failed. With a high F, at least. He cries, and all of a sudden, a bit like the deus ex machina of spontaneously learning French in The Grapes of Wrath, (laughs) he mentions that he knows how George Washington felt when he surrendered Fort Necessity to the French in 1754... And Mrs. Krabappel rewards him with a better score, which is a thing I've never heard of happening, but there we go, it's important for the episode. Yep. And Bart proudly hangs his D-minus on the fridge door and will not have to reset the grade. So there we go. That is Bart Gets an F. Mm Mm-hmm. But who wrote Bart Gets an F? It's a new writer! Oi! Well... It's not the non-existent John Swartzwelder. No, no. It's not Wallace Wolodarski. Absolutely not, no. Superb. Uh, It's a gentleman called David M. Stern. Now, he was an executive story consultant on the alleged comedy The Wonder Years and wrote eight episodes of it between 1988 and 1990, one of which was nominated for an Emmy. Okay. Uh, And here's a little fact for you. His brother Daniel Stern is an actor, and not only that, he's the actor who did the voiceovers on The Wonder Years, acting as the adult voice of the main character Kevin who, of course, was played as a child by Fred Savage for what appeared to be 60 interminable years. (laughs) Daniel will appear as the voice of an adult Bart Simpson in an episode later in this season. So there we go. That's quite a coincidence, isn't it? I will will leave you in suspense as to which one for now. Okay. Uh, Or or you might remember uh, (laughs) one of the two. Anyway, then David joined the writing staff of The Simpsons and was credited with episodes right through to... Season 28's Camp Crustier. 
It said he had a particular affinity for Patty and Selma. Uh, and indeed, we're going to find out that he's written Principal Charming later in this season. And Selma's Choice. He was also an executive producer on Monk, which I always quite enjoyed, and developed a series called Ugly Americans, which he's particularly proud of. Okay. So, there we go. Um, Tom, what, what did you think to the episode? I, th- I think we're on new ground here, aren't we? Yeah, a little bit, because the impression I get from it is that everything's much, much more polished now. It's as if the first series, they were in, like, first or second gear and occasionally put their foot down and you'd get an episode like Moaning Lisa or Krusty Gets Busted. This season, it feels like they've gone like up into third gear, and they're much more consistent, and sometimes they put their foot down and get like really, really good episodes. And it's like from the third series onwards that they're in top gear. Sorry, I had my car MOT'd today, so I'm coming <laughs> up with car analogies. Um, and yeah, the, the, the animation's a lot, lot smoother. There's a lot more use of... Things like depth and perspective. So in the new opening scene, you see Bart swing on his skateboard round a lamppost and the skateboard comes right up to the camera before he carries on on his way. Yeah. And there was a lot of use of uh, camera angles, well, (laughs) if you see what I mean, uh, that we noticed where, um, particularly where Bart is pictured from above, so you're looking down at him mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of the scenes where he's more in trouble or downtrodden. And indeed, you get the family looking down on him from the basement window when he's slapping himself in the face. Um, and I think it, it really adds to the feeling of him being resigned to his fate and, and having very little way of changing it. Mm, mm. Um, but, 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 but you do also, as a viewer, you pity him because... You're led to believe that Bart is this wild child who just doesn't care about school and whatever else. But, you know, it's obviously he does care because he's been written as a human being. Yeah. Which is really nice. He's also showing some very obvious signs of ADHD here again, which suggests it's it's not. He comes to the conclusion that he's dumb, but it could just be that he's having you know medical problems with concentrating. Mm-hmm. Um, he will continue, however, to go undiagnosed all the way through to season 11, episode 2, Brother's Little Helper, mm. where he is prescribed focusing. Although it's revealed at the end of the episode he was already on Ritalin, so maybe he did have a diagnosis for something before. I, I, yeah. Uh, we probably shouldn't see that as canon, though. No, so. no, it's 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 a bit preachy, that one. There was a, a great bit when we were watching it, uh, just just now, that I'd, I'd, I'd not made a note of, but I've, I've got to call it out here. At the end of Martin's transformation into a, a, a cool kid, he um, he pushes somebody into the ladies' bathroom, a, a boy into the ladies' bathroom, and says, the screams, the humiliation, the fact that it wasn't me. <laughs> and at that stage, even though Simpsons characters don't have particularly uh, expressive eyes, the look in his eyes is just monstrous. Well, well his, his eyes slightly bulge yeah. when he says alive. Yeah. Um, and ends up looking like a frog. There's there's a lot of characters looking like frogs in this episode. It's 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 a bit weird. Martin looks like a frog when he's on the floor. When Bart's getting into bed after he's prayed for a snow day, he looks like a frog with that with that sort of top down view. Well, he yeah. did say the life of a frog is the life for me. In yes, grapes of wrath. He did indeed. Uh, I should probably mention that it's it's been said this episode was a response to the moral panic that whipped up that I mentioned earlier around schools banning Bart Simpson t-shirts. So J. Lauren Pryor pretty much quotes 
uh, underachiever and proud of it, which is one of the, the shirt slogans the Fox came up with, which I don't believe had been said in the series up until no. that point. No, definitely not. Um, so this episode can be read as an attempt at showing the less glamorous side of underachievement and trying to make Bart more of a sympathetic character mm-hmm. rather than a Hellraiser. And I think I think it goes some way to doing that. It's worth noting, however, that James L. Brooks is on record as saying that it wasn't a direct response, uh, but that they were mindful of the possible influence their character could have. So uh, whether this was a, a, an attempt to mitigate that slightly... Mm-hmm. Um, it is is lost to the ages, really. But yeah. you can you can definitely read it that way. Character debuts. I'm not sure whether there are any or not, which is a terrible thing for me to say as the <laughs> person who holds the responsibility for researching uh, whether or not there are any character debuts. Some sources say that Mayor Diamond Joe Quimby de- debuted in this episode. Others say it was earlier. I don't, to be honest, I think it was earlier as well. However, he's a fun character, so let's just give him a quick intro anyway. (laughs) Voiced by Dan Castellaneta, Quimby has been mayor of Springfield since 1986 and remains the mayor throughout basically the entire run of the series, though notably he is briefly replaced by Sideshow Bob in Season 6, Episode 5, Sideshow Bob Roberts. Mm -hmm. Worth noting as well that in Season 26, Episode 13, Walking Big and Tall, it is mentioned that Hans Molman is a former mayor of Springfield. His, uh, his motto, uh, Quimby, not Molman, is corruptus in extremis, <laughs> and he is essentially a Kennedy. Yes. His family is Kennedy-esque. He is married to a lady named Martha, who we will later find out he met at the Maison Derriere. Uh, she's very Jackie-o, right down to the suit. Uh, and he is constantly having affairs, taking bribes, and giving kickbacks, which, for legal reasons, I should probably have put further away from the bit about him being a Kennedy. <laughs> He's certainly not above shenanigans to raise his public profile. For example, his full name was revealed in Season 20, Episode 1, Sex, Pies and Idiot Scrapes, which, despite the terrible, terrible title, is actually not a bad post-Season 10 episode. That His full name is Joseph Fitzgerald O'Malley Fitzpatrick O'Donnell The Edge Quimby. But this could have been related to his presence at a St. Patrick's Day parade at the time. Well, I think what they're going for there is that when Kennedy, the actual John F. Kennedy, became US president, a lot was made of his Irish Catholic heritage. Ah, okay. So, right. so so that's what they would have been going for there, just just giving him as many Irish names as possible, but which is why they finish on the edge. Right, I didn't even realise that was a further Kennedy re- reference. Oh, there, yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, well, it's not nearly as bad as that... Um, is that Irish Cardinal, Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor. He was basically trying to be his Irish support, and he was a real person. Uh, hopefully we're not adding the Irish to the, the Welsh and the Australians in uh, kind of ethnic groups that we've annoyed yeah, well, in the podcast. I don't think so. Uh, and let's not even mention the pre-whacked snakes. <laughs> uh, also, he's a Democrat, which means that for all his misappropriation of funds and murder of political enemies, he's actually the lesser of two evils compared to the Springfield Republican Party, which, lest we forget, includes Dracula. <laughs> yes, yes. And Dr. Hibbert, weirdly enough. Yes, yes. So, mercifully, Tom, this is nearly over. <laughs> um, but did you know? Did you know the earnest Hemingway book that Martin reads from is The Old Man and the Sea? Not directly, but, but but I'm not exactly a big literature buff, so... Uh... No, no. Um, no cats with extra toes, though. 
Little bizarre reference for the listeners there. Shout up if you get it. Yep. Lisa's exclamation, prayer, the last refuge of a scoundrel, is inspired by a quote from the writer and lexicographer Samuel Johnson, which stated that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Mm. A very timely did you know there. Yes, definitely. And did you spot basically all of the one or two shot characters from season one having a bit of a sing in the snow? Yeah, that's pretty epic, that scene. Yep. Yep. And it's a scene that contains Jacques, again, Cowboy Bob, Princess Cashmere, and Bleeding Gums Murphy, along with basically every other adult character we've been introduced to thus far. And that, dear friends and listeners, <laughs> is Bart Gets an F. That's the longest I've spoken on this podcast yet. Mm-hmm. And now it is with a, with a sore throat and a satisfied mind that I hand you over to Tom. Okay, right, so... Like I said earlier, I'm going to be talking about Transnistria, which is this barely recognised state in Eastern Europe, population about half a million, which declared its independence on September 2nd, 1990, about a month before Bart Gets an F was first aired. But before we get started, we've had an amazing piece of listener feedback. Now, I love all our listener feedback, but this one is pretty special. So our last episode was a flag special And one of the flags we talked about was the flag of the Confederate States of America, otherwise known as the Stars and Bars. Emma McClure, a listener, friend of ours, an all-round great person, got in touch to inform us that the building she works in was once the home of the Embassy of the Confederacy in the UK. Now, she's told me that before, but what really got my attention this time was the picture she sent. It's of the plaque by the door. It doesn't pull its punches. I mean... If I was running a building that housed the Confederate Embassy, I'd probably move the plaque, or at least try and hide it. But this, I mean, just look at how ornate it is. I'll put it on the blog so people can see it. So so thanks for that, Emma. That's great. Yes, thank you very much. I, I also realise that I walk past that building quite often. <laughs> it's, it's right near my work. Right. And I had seen the plaque before, but the penny hadn't dropped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because, because like I said on this flag special, it's for stars and bars. It's the original flag of the Confederacy with the red stripe, white stripe, red stripe, and seven stars in the canton. And it's not the flag of the Confederacy that people are familiar with. But yeah, yeah, I cannot believe how, how ornate that plaque is. So anyway, uh, Transnistria. So while Americans were sitting down to enjoy the start of Series 2 of The Simpsons, a war was just starting in a tiny region of Eastern Europe. So let's start with geography. The area we are looking at starts with Romania in the west. As we go further east, we come to Moldova. Officially east of Moldova is Ukraine, and then it's a long way off to Russia. Going back to Moldova, the disputed region of Transnistria lies within a very thin strip of land in Moldova between the Ukrainian border and the Dniestra River, hence the name Transnistria, as in its on the other side of Nistra, like Transjordan is on the other side of Jordan, etc. It has a population of nearly half a million, so not insignificant, certainly not compared to the Falklands anyway. And what's it like there? Well, funnily enough, I've never been, but it can be summed up in one word, Soviet. The imagery, uniforms and insignia used in Transnistria all contain Soviet motifs, including the hammer and sickle. It issues passports that feature a Soviet roundel, and their parliament is fronted by a statue of Vladimir Lenin. Even their flag is a relic of Soviet times, 
as it's the flag of the old Moldovan Soviet Socialist Republic, complete with the hammer and sickle in the canton. So what's going on? Why does this curious remnant of the Soviet Union exist on the fringes of the European Union? In an attempt to answer this question, we need to delve into the recent history of Romania, Moldova and the Soviet Union itself. We've already talked a little bit about the history of Romania in our first proper episode, Simpsons Roasting on a Romanian Revolution, so I won't go over it too much here. As for Moldova, it covers most of a region formerly known as Bessarabia. This region was part of the Russian Empire up until 1917, when following the Russian Revolution, it declared itself the Moldavian Democratic Republic. Troops from neighbouring Romania moved in, and the country became united with the Kingdom of Romania in 1918. So there it's going, Romania united with Moldova, then uh, Soviet Union. The Soviets considered this to be an illegal occupation and formed a government in exile. In 1924, the Soviets formed the Moldavian Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic. I, I, I'm, I'm really struggling with these names. They have to be so long. So they formed the Moldavian Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic out of bits of the Ukraine and Transnistria. So why did they do this? Well, the Soviets wanted Moldova to break away from Romania and fall within their empire, quote-unquote. The Soviets sensed an appetite for this following the failed Tartabunary uprising, where, inspired by Bolsheviks, peasants revolted in and around the town of Tartabunary, then in Romania, but part of Ukraine. They wanted to show the Moldavians, if you like, what they could have if they switched allegiances. They recognised Moldavians as a people separate to Romanians. So this was the status quo until World War II. After signing the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact with Nazi Germany, the Soviets threatened to invade Bessarabia. Romania relented and Soviet troops went in. The Moldavian Soviet Socialist Republic was declared from around 65% of Bessarabia and the Moldavian Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic. Later in the war, Romania, as part of the Axis powers, invaded Bessarabia. As the tide of the war changed, the Soviets went back. So it's all very, very confusing as to, as to who's got what. But following the war, things were pretty stable during the Cold War era. The Soviets allocated some parts of Bessarabia to the Ukrainian SSR, and the rest became the Moldavian SSR. Romania became communist, falling under the Soviet sphere of influence, and would eventually be run by Nikolai Ceausescu. I have absolutely no idea how the Soviet Union was able to operate with all of these long, complicated names, all of these changes of status, all this kind of thing. I'm confused just listening to yes. it. They had to run it. Yeah, yeah. Well, well it was very bureaucratic, and um, as we're about to find out, uh, rather, rather violent. Uh. So during the early part of the Soviet era, Stalin kept the population in check in the ways he knew how. So imprisonment, deportations and executions. So I've talked about this kind of thing in Krusty Gets for Singing Revolution, so go off and have a listen to that if you like. The post-war years also saw something else that the Baltics experienced, Russification. The Soviets spent billions of rubles on building projects in and around the capital Kishinev, modern-day Chisinau, and they also attempted to change the language. In part of their drive to persuade Moldavians that they were distinct from Romanians, 
The Soviets wrote the Moldovan language in the Cyrillic script, whereas Romanians used the Latin alphabet. And in 1956, the Soviets stationed the 14th Army there. So that's what it was like until more or less the mid-80s. The Soviets are trying to make Moldova more and more Russian. So in 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev became the leader of the Soviet Union and instigated the policies of Glasnost and Perestroika. Oh, have we missed Andropov and Janenko? Yeah, afraid so. They, oh. they didn't really do anything in the story. Oh, they're two of my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> so a key part of Glasnost and Perestroika was the toleration of independence movements. In Moldova, the Democratic Movement of Moldova was formed in 1988. As the Soviet Union fractured, the movement became the popular front of Moldova in 1989. As far as I'm aware, there was not a Moldovan popular front. Splitter. (laughs) On August 27th, 1989, 300,000 people protested in the Moldovan capital in support of the front in an event known as the Grand National Assembly. One of the things they protested was for a change to the language law. On October 31st, the Moldovan Supreme Soviet, as it still was at the time, changed the written script of Moldovan from Cyrillic back to Latin. While this move was greeted with joy in the capital, it did not go down well in Transnistria, which still had a large Russian population. The language laws made no mention of Russian, and the Russian-speaking people in Transnistria had no guarantee that the language that they spoke would be respected. And then in December 1989 came the downfall of the Ceausescu regime in Romania, and this led to the Romanian-Moldovan border being partially opened. Russian-speaking Transnistrians feared that these events, combined with the language laws and Gorbachev's policies, would inevitably lead to Moldova breaking away from the USSR and once again uniting with Romania. And the Moldovan elections of 1990 did nothing to dispel those fears. Like other Soviet republics at the time, the Moldovan SSR held elections on February 25th, 1990, and the laws around them were a bit odd. The only party that was allowed to contest them was the Communist Party, but politicians from other parties could stand so long as they stood as independents. Okay. Yep, that's that's not making any sense. Yeah, I have no idea how you, how you would even check that. But that's what they did. So politicians from the Popular Front won the election, formed a government, and started taking steps to make Moldova independent. On June 23rd, the government declared the sovereignty of the Soviet Socialist Republic of Moldova. So they've changed their name. So So they're no longer the Moldovan Soviet Socialist Republic... They're the Soviet Socialist Republic of Moldova. Splitter. <laughs> now, that may appear at first to be a simple semantic change, but what it also did was declare the supremacy of Moldovan law above Soviet law. So that's part of the War of Laws that we've talked about in previous episodes. You've got the constituent part of, of the Soviet U- Union saying, right, our laws are going to take precedence over, over the main Soviet laws. So in Transnistria, all of this news was reacted to with a declaration of the Pridnestrovian Moldavian Soviet Socialist Republic. <laughs> Hope I've got that right. Also known as the PMR for short, so that's so that's what I'm going to call it, the PMR. On September 2nd, 1990, about a month before Bart gets an F first ed, politician Igor Smirnov was elected its chairman. Gorbachev himself decreed this declaration to be null and void. And the first small-scale clash of what was to become the war between the two sides 
happened on November 2nd, 1990 in Dubassery, when the local court was stormed and a roadblock set up at a place called Lunga. The police were sent to clear the roadblock, were met with resistance and opened fire, killing three people. So, you know, it's a small clash, but it's establishing that there's two sides and one side is doing something that the other doesn't want to and the other side is going to respond with force. That's all it takes to start a war, really. Mm, mm. So on August 27th, 1991, Moldova declared its full independence following the Soviet coup attempt. I can't wait to talk about that in a future show because it's so important for the whole Soviet Union. And what they declared was rather complex. They declared the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, so we're going back to 1940, they declared that null and void, and therefore the original borders of the Moldavian SSR had no legal basis. And the PMR took this to mean that Transnistria was no longer in Moldova, as before 1940 it was part of the Moldavian Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic, which was an area carved out from Ukraine. And the Moldovan government were quick to challenge this and try to assert control over the area. So at this point in the story, you've got the newly independent Moldova and the PMR. The PMR is unrecognised but loyal to the Soviet Union, and there's already been clashes between the two sides. So when it became independent, Moldova had no military of its own. It began to set up its own defence ministries and its own armed forces. They inherited weaponry from the Soviets and also had help from Romania. The PMR, on the other hand, could count on the 14th Army, which was still hanging around. Although the allegiance of the 14th Army had changed from the Soviet Union to the Russian Federation via the CIS, Commonwealth of Independent States... Oh, I remember when that was a football team very briefly. Yes, yes, that, that was around for about a year, I think. They could also count on a volunteer force of Cossacks from several regions of neighbouring Ukraine. The Moldovans again attempted to cross the bridge at Lunga on December 13th, 1991. They failed and four Moldovan soldiers were killed. After this, there wasn't much fighting until March 2nd, 1992, the date the war is officially considered to have started. It also happens to be the same day that Moldova was admitted to the United Nations. Ah. And as we all know, you're not a proper country unless you're recognised by the UN. Fighting continued across the Dniester River for the course of the war, with both sides engaging in trench warfare and street battles. The Moldovans took the city of Benderi, prompting a retaliatory response from the PMR forces. The 14th Army, the forces of the PMR, and the Cossacks stormed Benderi. The Moldovans then believed that those forces were preparing to cross the Dniester into Moldova itself, so they sent a MiG bomber to blow up the bridge, and that mission failed. But, on July 21st, a ceasefire was signed which brought the war to an end. Around 400 people died in the conflict. Following the war, a permanent resolution looked extremely unlikely. The 14th Army remained in Transnistria, with General Alexander Lebed repeatedly claiming that he could reach Bucharest in two hours. Having said that, attempts at reconciliation have been made. The first was in 1997 with the Primakov Memorandum, negotiated under the auspices of the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe. The presidents of Moldova and Transnistria signed a document stating that the relations between the Republic of Moldova and Transnistria should be developed within the framework of a common state within the borders of Soviet Moldova. So that's what was stated, that's what they were meant to be aiming towards. And 2002 saw the COSAC Memorandum, 
This aimed to unite Moldova and Transnistria as a federal state. But not much has come of it, and it was protested against in Chisinau. So as of January 2018, the status quo is that Transnistria remains a part of Moldova as recognised by the UN. Transnistria is only officially recognised as a country by other unrecognised countries, such as Abkhazia, South Ossetia and Artsakh, which is also known as Nagorno-Karabakh. And of course, yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, now I'm saying that because that's got a great flag. Well, it was not that great a flag. It's a very interesting flag. It's the flag of Armenia with, with a load of white blocks taken out. Okay, so are those all Eastern European countries? Yes, they are. Um, you may remember that Georgia and Russia went to war, I think, in about 2006, maybe? Yes, yes. Over, over these small regions of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Right, right. And Artsakh, after Armenia and Azerbaijan became independent from the Soviet Union, they went to war over this disputed region. And it's part of Armenia, but it's completely surrounded by, Az- by, Azerbaijan, by Azerbaijan. Oh. So it's, you know, it's, 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 all a bit, it's all a bit complicated. It's awkward at best, that one. Mm. But, uh, yeah. Absolutely. So, before I finish, I need to mention one more important thing. Transnistria's human rights record. The regime there has been accused of being authoritarian and intolerant of dissent. Igor Smirnov was in power until 2011, so, you know, he was in charge for 20 years, which is a long time for anyone to be in power of anything. And in 2006, the US State Department produced a report criticising the regime. They noted that the media was state-run and independent media harassed by the authorities. There have been several cases of political opponents to the regime being beaten and imprisoned. The US report also stated the following. Authorities reportedly continue to use torture and arbitrary arrest and detention. The separatist region remained a significant source and transit area for trafficking in persons. And homosexuality was illegal and gays and lesbians were subject to government and societal discrimination. In 2007, a report by Freedom House described Transnistria as being non-free. So it's hard to say what the future holds for Transnistria, but in human rights terms, Transnistria most certainly gets an F. I like what you did there. There you go. Although I don't like Transnistria's human rights record. (laughs) (sighs) I'm glad it's unrecognised. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a weird one because... When I was researching this, I watched a few videos of people who have gone to Transnistria, just as tourists. And you can do that, and apparently when you do, you're told, right, don't film this, don't film that, don't talk to anyone. So it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a pretty unfriendly place. On the plus side, closer than the Falklands. Yes, yes, I suppose so. So... <sighs> So there we are. That's the that's the first bit of history for season two of Retrospecticus. Bit Excellent. Of, bit of Transnistria. Brilliant. Okay. Well. Well. I hope you've enjoyed our triumphant return. <laughs> uh, season two will rumble on with episode two of season two uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, but until then, if you'd like to tell us if Amoria phlebitis uh, exists or not, then you know where to find us. Yep. If I've got any of my pronunciations hilariously wrong, please let us know. Podcast at Retrospecticus or on Twitter underscore Retrospecticus. Excellent. Uh, So until next time, goodbye. Bye, everyone.
In Moldova, the Democratic Movement of Moldova was formed in 1988. As the Soviet Union fractured, the movement became the popular front of Moldova in 1989. As far as I'm aware, there was not a Moldovan popular front. Splitter. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Did I say popular front or people's front? <laughs> I'm going to have to do that again. I'm, okay. pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I said people's front. I'm going to have to say splitter again. Yeah, okay. As the Soviet Union fractured... The movement became the popular front of Moldova in 1989, and as far as I'm aware, there was no Moldovan popular front. You said popular front both times then? Yeah, that was right. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 because it's popular front, not people's front. All right, so it's popular front of Moldova, or Moldovan's popular front. Sorry, I'm yeah, no, confused you. No, 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 sorry, I, I, I confused myself because, because I wrote the Monty Python joke. Right. And I've obviously said people's front thinking of the Monty Python joke. Gotcha, sorry, right. Okay. So we have to do that. <laughs> Let's do it again, okay. Thing is, I'm going to listen back and realise that I said popular front in the first place and just used the first one. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Well, anyway, okay, let's give it one more go. Okay. So... As the Soviet Union fractured, the movement became the popular front of Moldova in 1989. As far as I'm aware, there was not a Moldovan popular front. Splitter. <laughs>